1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we interview the author. This week my guest is George Iber and we are discussing his co authored book, Latinos in U.S. Sport, published in 2011 by Human Kinetics. This past summer, in June 2011, The United States men's national soccer team played Mexico in the final match of the Gold Cup. The regional tournament held every two years for teams from North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. This year's championship was held at the Rose Bowl, one of the most historic stadiums in the United States in Pasadena, California. Given the large Mexican-American population in Southern California, it was not surprising that the crowd was decidedly in support of Team Mexico. Shirts, scarves, and banners in the colors green, white, and red were far more prominent than those in red, white, and blue. The fact that a Mexican team played what amounted to a home game on U.S. soil generated a bit of controversy, one online commentator chided the Mexican supporters for disrespecting their American hosts. The controversy was fanned even more when the postgame award ceremony, in which the victorious Mexican team received the trophy, was conducted in Spanish, something which one U.S. player objected to in strong and expletive-laced terms. The Gold Cup illustrated the ambiguous place of Latinos in U.S. sports. Latinos are superstars in one of the country's most popular professional sports, Major League Baseball. And as a growing segment of the population throughout the United States, Latinos are a much-desired market for sports products. But Latino audiences are generally drawn to sports that are marginal to the average white fan, such as soccer and boxing, which creates something of a parallel sporting culture. And the Rose Bowl crowd's strong support for the Mexican team and the post-game ceremony held in Spanish touch on a concern evident in broader white society, a concern that taints current U.S. politics, that Latinos are a distinct and not really American part of the population. Although their book does not address this recent episode, George Iber and his co-authors do present the complex history of Latinos in modern American sports. Sports have been a means of exclusion and a supposed marker of racial differences throughout U.S. history. At the same time, Latino athletes in U.S. sports have challenged stereotypes and opened opportunities. If you have an interest in American sports history, your knowledge is really incomplete without an understanding of Latinos in this history. I realized this while reading George's book and visiting with him about it. So let's turn to the interview. George, welcome to New Books in Sports. Thank you for joining me on the program. Thank you for having
0: me, Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: So I want to start by uh, asking you to give, give something of an introduction of yourself. And I know that you've done quite a bit of work on the history of Latinos in, sport, uh, in sports history. So uh, could you just explain a bit about your, your interest in sports and what brought you to do research in sports history?
0: Well, Bruce, uh, to be honest with you, it it, it was a very, very fortuitous set of events that brought me to sports history. Uh, When I decided to pursue my doctorate at the University of Utah uh, in the early 1990s, uh, I, I was focused on doing something on Latinos, Hispanics, and the American West. And when I got to campus... And I began meeting the various professors on campus. I, I ran into uh, Larry Gerlach, uh, who is a, a, a very well known uh, historian of, of sport. And I simply could not believe <laughs> that you could actually focus specifically on the history of sport. And once I got there, uh, I, I completed my dissertation on a, on a very traditional Mexican-American topic. I actually did uh, my first book is on the history of Hispanics, uh, particularly Mormon Hispanics in the Salt Lake City area. But uh, Larry and I would talk about sports history and about some of the things that were um, uh, were happening in the particular field. And when I got here to Texas Tech, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Bobby Cavazos. Now, Bobby Cavazos is the younger brother of Laudo Cavazos, who was had been president of Texas Tech. And I began to sort of find out about his story. He was a, a second-team All-American for Texas Tech in the early 1950s. And I, I slowly but surely I began to develop a sense that there is a possibility of writing about Mexican-Americans and Latinos in sport. And then after that, I just started visiting different parts of the state of Texas, primarily South Texas, primarily the, uh, the Rio Grande Valley. And I began to unearth just some wonderful, wonderful stories on... Cavasso's uh on the nineteen sixty one Donna Redskins which uh, is mentioned uh, are mentioned uh, on several occasions in, in in this book uh and little by little I began to amass this uh collection of stories and as I would present papers in various con- at various conferences i I began to find out about Jose Alamillo, and, and and I mean, of course, obviously the 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 Godfather of studying Spanish-speaking people and sport is Sam Regalado, and I actually had met Sam Regalado uh, in the late 1990s, and we began to to have this conversation about the potential for this particular field, and ultimately, Bruce, what it comes down what it comes down to is that if you look at the history of various ethnic groups in the United States and their relationship to sport. There's quite a bit of work that's been Mm -hmm. done on Jews in sports, Mm -hmm. uh, Native Americans in sports, African Americans in sports, of course. But we kept coming across this vast gap Mm -hmm. in the literature that really no one had done uh out you know Sam had done uh, a lot of work on baseball no one had done um research on Latinos participating in other sports and frankly the amount of work that had been done on Latinos in baseball really wasn't all that um uh, voluminous because you know Sam was basically the field mm-hmm. so so that is what helped to bring about this uh this uh, group of authors uh, uh, that that contributed to this one to, to this new work.
1: So you have three co-writers with this book, uh, and I'll ask you what brought the, the four of you together, and uh, how did you how did you divide up the labor?
0: Well, um, uh, Sam Regalado um, uh, came to Texas Tech uh, in May of two thousand seven. We were holding. The, uh, the Nash National Conference here at Tech. And Sam and I had, you know, have been friends for, for about fifteen fifteen years by that, by that point in time. And we, we sat down with, um uh, some of the editors, uh, from Human Kinetics who were visiting, uh, the conference and, and meeting with, uh, potential authors. And basically the pitch that we made was this is a population that is growing dramatically well, we're now going to be the largest minority group in the united states you have latinos now moving into a- areas of the country where no one uh, you know no one had uh, previously expected them to go Um, This is a story of people um, who have utilized in many ways sports just the same way that African-Americans have used it, Native Americans have used it, uh, various ethnic groups have utilized sport as a way in part to challenge certain stereotypical assumptions. And that was the genesis of of the, uh, of, 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 the, of the current book. Now, Jose Alamillo uh, had done some work previously on uh, Mexican-American laborers in uh, various parts of California, but within his research he had spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about the role of sports and recreation in the lives of these laborers. So that's how I made the connection with uh, with uh, uh, Jose Alamillo, and also he he came up with a uh, with an article on uh, along the same lines to a certain extent of what Richard Santillan did in two thousand. He published an article on Mexican American uh, baseball teams in in uh, in Southern California. So that was that's what brought the three of us together. Now Arnoldo de Leon is probably the most uh, important individual writing on the experience of Mexican-Americans, Mexicans in the state of Texas. I had worked with him on on a previous textbook, and I knew that he had substantial expertise on the 19th century, the 18th century, and we felt that we could sort of utilize the knowledge that the three individuals who had done work specifically on sport, plus Arnoldo's uh, vast knowledge of these earlier centuries and sort of work to put together these uh, the, the, what turns out to be the first two chapters of the book. So what we did is we we sat down and we decided which particular topics we were interested in uh, writing about. And, and you know... uh, A lot of this comes directly from the the research that we had done previously. Sam, obviously, made perfect sense for him to take the lead in writing about baseball. Uh, I had done quite a bit of research on uh, Mexican-Americans and other Latinos playing high school football here in Texas, uh, a little less research, but still a significant amount on uh, Latinos playing high school football in my home state of Florida. Jose had done quite a bit of work on basketball in Southern California. He had also done quite a bit of work on Pancho Gonzalez and just tennis in general. Um, and so that's that 's kind of how and why and also soccer and soccer and boxing as well so that 's how we we sort of came to divide things up now, the section where we deal with for example, Latinos as consumers, my particular background, uh, my undergraduate degree is in business. I had worked in retailing, I had worked in corporate america uh, for a few years before I got into academia. And that was just a natural area of interest, uh, particularly because I grew up in Little Havana in Miami, and I would listen to the Miami the games of the Miami Dolphins when they would actually win, um, alongside my dad who spoke no English. So we would listen to the Dolphins in Spanish. And it, it it just sort of uh, uh, made made a very important connection in my mind that, well, who were the advertisers that were advertising for the Miami Dolphins back then? Mm-hmm. What other teams have uh, broadcast their games in Spanish? And I mean, again, once you once you sort of begin to ask those questions it makes a lot of sense that you can begin to look at, for example, the Dallas Cowboys, the Oakland Raiders. And Sam had done some research and, and written an article in the late 90s on the development of Spanish-language radio broadcasting the games of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, I mean, that sort of brought that particular area those those sets of questions brought that particular area into a, a certain degree of focus and you know I consulted some of my colleagues here on on the Texas Tech campus in regards to you know who are the the, the the principal scholars that are writing about marketing mm-hmm. uh, to Latinos, and then after that, you begin to make other connections, and eventually, you start looking at who are the folks that are writing about Latinos and sport and marketing. and, and I actually found a couple of um, a couple of master's theses that dealt directly with that topic.
1: So let's get into the book. And uh, the the introduction of the book, you have a profile of Alex Tejada, who uh, just finished last year his his career as the place kicker for the University of Arkansas football team for the Razorbacks. Right. And uh, so, why did you choose him as a representative figure to start the book with?
0: Well, I think that the Tejada story in, in it captured some of the crucial themes that we wanted to that that we develop in the book. For example, uh, Tejada is of Salvadorian background. His parents came to Los Angeles in the uh, latter part of the uh, the, uh, the 1980s, and eventually, because of the opportunities to work in, and I'm not saying that, that his parents worked specifically for Tyson Foods, but part of what draws the Latinos... Uh, predominantly Mexicans, Guatemalans, and Salvadorans to Northwest Arkansas uh, is the availability of work in uh, chicken processing, primarily with Tyson. There are other opportunities with companies like J.B. Hunt, with companies like Walmart, and that begins to draw that population into that part of Arkansas. And what happens then is, of course, you know, it, it, the, the migratory patterns are very, very uh, common. Uh, if you look at the history of Mexican-Americans and other Latinos going into different parts of the United States, initially the people, that, the first individuals that will come are going to be the solos, the, the the single men in their 20s. Some of them have... Uh, wives and children back in Mexico or back in California or back in Texas or wherever they've come from, and they go to this new place, Bentonville, Arkansas, and they begin to establish themselves uh, at these particular uh, processing plants, eventually you begin to get more and more uh, families that, uh, arrive in these places and their kids begin to attend, uh, the public schools in the area. And, 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 and again, Tejada suits, uh, follows that particular storyline to a T. He comes in, he is, uh, limited English proficiency. He begins to learn English. He begins to, uh, uh, acclimate himself, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the, the social and academic setting of the schools in that particular part of Arkansas. He initially plays soccer, but someone somewhere along the line said, hey, you know, you're, you've, got, you've got a pretty good leg. Maybe you ought to try out for the football team. He winds up uh, playing for the Springdale High School uh, Bulldogs. Um, uh, he, he helps the team win a state title In his senior season, he establishes, uh, several, uh, records, several Arkansas records as far as point after touchdown percentage, uh, as far as field goal percentage, uh, and just, you know, very much like your typical excellent high school athlete begins to draw attention from a lot of different, um, Universities, uh, LSU was recruiting him, Ole Miss was recruiting him, Nebraska was recruiting him, Vanderbilt was rec- was recruiting him, but he makes the decision to stay in Arkansas. And once you know, once he made that decision, what I found particularly interesting was the fact that at the ceremony at Springdale High, where he announces that he's going to be a Razorback, he actually holds that press conference. Uh, in both English and Spanish, and he talks about how um, I, I, I want to represent my family. I want to represent my my people, and I, I'm not going to forget where I'm from. So he sees himself as a um, as a role model to a certain extent uh, for the rest of these young men and young women who are competing now for Springdale and for some of the other schools in that particular area in Arkansas. And and, and I, if I could just point out one of the things, Bruce, I, I, if you were to go to the Springdale High School uh, website, and I did this recently, and by recently I mean maybe about nine months ago, a year ago, if you were to look at the roster of their um, football team, it's easily uh thirty five forty percent Spanish surname. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh in some of the research that I'm doing now for for my next project, I've been in touch with some folks in southwestern Kansas and I had one of the coaches with whom I spoke in a little town called Ulysses Mm -hmm. send me a copy of the roster for the team that was starting the season uh for this particular for this fall and his team was maybe 60% percent huh. spanish surname, So you're, you're, you're getting these Latino athletes in places where you don't necessarily expect them to be, and it, the, the, the fact that they are competing, that they are going out to do metaphorical battle against the, this town's greatest rival— uh, and they're carrying the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations, uh, uh, the gridiron aspirations of that community, gives a certain sense of what's happening in these new com- these little communities in the Midwest. And you know, there's lots of literature out there that talks about how the Latino infusion into places like Springdale, into places like West Liberty, Iowa, Lexington, Nebraska. Uh, ulysses Kansas, Garden City Kansas is transforming and in many ways may may be the saving grace
1: mm-hmm.
0: for a lot of these communities mm-hmm.
1: so we need to we need to look at the history to move up to uh to this point and I do want to talk about uh 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 sports and contemporary society and and what you discussed and how sports is marketed and so forth but we need to go back let's go back to the uh to the nineteenth century to uh uh looking at the period after uh, the United States has annexed uh, the territory, the northern territories of Mexico, and mm-hmm. uh, you have American settlers uh, moving into these territories. And I was struck in reading this chapter uh, of how the history of sports in in the borderlands, the southwest United States, really parallels the history of sport in colonized lands in other parts of the world. And so for, for listeners of this podcast, the example would be, uh, Andrew Morris's history of baseball in Taiwan, uh, which right. uh, we, we talked about uh, a few podcasts back, a few episodes back. So, like in these other lands in the American Southwest, sports was both a way of of marking the superiority of the ruling group and mm-hmm. as a means of educating and even assimilating the local population. So could you talk about this use of sports in the borderlands in the, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries?
0: Well, you, the summary that you've presented is, is exactly what we see happening in the, in the borderlands, in, in, the, in the American Southwest. You have a population in Texas, in New Mexico, in Arizona, in California they have their own sports mm-hmm. uh, they have uh bullfighting they have uh, uh various uh sports relating to horsemanship and handling and working of cattle and the americans as they begin to come into that those areas in the years after 1848 are making the argument um these sports, this sport in particular, I mean obviously right right off the bat, we're talking primarily about baseball. Uh, this sport is scientific. this sport is modern. This sport is what will teach you the things that you need to know in order to be able to succeed in this new capitalist system that is coming, to the forefront in these areas if you want to understand and and if you want to participate and if you want to be part of this new society this is the sport you have to play and and i mean it, it, it echoes uh some of the things that uh, Luis Perez writes about uh, with Cuba uh it echoes some of the things that Jerry Gems has written about in various parts of the world so for example you have um uh you have Mexican-Americans, uh, it, 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 to use that particular term, by the time that we get to the 1880s, 1890s, be, playing baseball, you have individual teams that are comprised of uh, exclusively of Spanish-speaking, Spanish-surnamed individuals. Uh, some of those teams are quite good they are able to compete against um uh anglos uh with whom uh they they share this particular area and the the question i think becomes um what impact does success on the field have as far as challenging some of these assumptions that um uh, anglo's have about Latinos uh, Arnoldo de Leon in some of his earlier work spends quite a bit of time uh, especially here in Texas arguing uh, discussing the arguments that uh the anglos who come into Texas uh with Austin and in the years afterwards they argue that latinos that mexican americans are lazy that they're not particularly smart that they are violent uh, inherently violent and they are certainly not fit to rule texas they're certainly not fit to have leadership positions in this new economy, in this new society, specifically because they don't have these these traits that the Anglos have. But yet, here they are being successful in the sport of the Anglo and challenging them directly, and in some cases defeating them, in these particular uh, sports that they bring in. And I mean, that... I think even is 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 becomes even more evident once football comes into Texas in the in the in the latter part of the eighteen nineties. Now you're going to have teams from South Texas that are exhibiting certain skills. They are good. They they will win at certain levels. Now I, I've got to be honest with you, part of what I found out in researching the, the article on the 1961 Donna Redskins, which, which are the only team from the Valley ever to win a state title in, in football in Texas, is that um, you can have very good teams from the Valley or from, uh, from San Antonio or from El Paso that are predominantly Latino. Uh, But what has tended to happen is they get to a certain point, they get to a certain level, and then when they're confronted with teams from larger metropolitan areas, the size, the speed, the depth of those teams eventually tends to overwhelm these these schools from the Valley. Now, um, that doesn't mean that these kids don't play good football and that some of them don't make it into... Um, to play for uh, uh, even in the old Southwest Conference, they're you know not an enormous number, but there's a, there's a decent number of Latinos who have played collegiately at the highest levels here in Texas and in other parts of the country. Uh, and and again, I I see these individuals as challenging those assumptions about the. Supposed limitations that these uh, that these particular athletes and that this particular population have. Mm-hmm.
1: This is this is your particular area of research in terms of looking at Latinos in football and and the high school level in Texas. And uh, uh, why is it? This is a point that's made in the book: is that you don't see uh, as prominent a presence of Latinos in football as baseball. And we'll talk about baseball later on. And and so why is that? Why have uh, uh, why have you not had as many Latinos in, in American football as in, as in other sports?
0: Well, I, I, think, I think the argument is, is a relatively simple one in the sense that only recently have you been able to have um, Latino families who have been able to, uh, on, a, on a consistent basis give these types of opportunities to their sons, in this Mm -hmm. case, to play this particular sport. Football is is a game that takes a tremendous amount of of time, a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of training, um, and a lot of families until very, very recently really just simply could not afford to lose the uh, income-generating capacity Mm -hmm. of... One or two sons and and that is part of what keeps what, what kept a lot of these kids out of sport now uh you have examples uh, like coach e c lerma whom uh, whom I write quite a bit about in 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 the book who are able to overcome these lim- these uh uh, limitations that are placed upon them because of the unique circumstances in, in, in their families. But you really have had, it, it's been a struggle financially for these individuals to be able to, uh, to, to say to their sons, uh, it's okay for you not to work to help support the family mm-hmm. uh you you can go you can go and play football and again if if you look at the chapter where I talk about the uh the Donna Redskins, there are several players on that team whose families actually would have would have left Donna and would have gone to various parts of the country. There was one individual whose family would go to Alabama and to Michigan to work in agriculture. And it was a it was it was a hindrance to the family to let this one son stay in the valley in order to be able to um, to 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 be ready to play for, to to practice for the upcoming season. So that's the the economics has has certainly been an issue. Um, I think you're 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 not seeing that quite as much with the Latinos who are uh, more well established in the sense that they've been in this country for a longer period of time um, now in in looking at some of the very preliminary research that I've been doing in a place like Kansas or in a place like Arkansas, I think what you're seeing there is uh these jobs in the in the meat processing or in the chicken processing industries are certainly quite difficult. They don't they don't pay particularly well, but they are good enough that the door is opening for young men like Tejada okay. and, or or some of these other individuals. So so the the the, the economics I think have changed even. For the newer immigrants, uh, than say back in the 1930s when it was, you know, it, it was nearly impossible. E.C. Lerma was the first individual to play uh, Mexican American to play high school football at Kingsville, and you know, frankly, he did it because he had he was the 12th child uh, in the family; both his parents were dead and his 11 his 11 brothers and sisters managed to cobble together uh various jobs, various small businesses in order to make uh, to to make it possible for him to make it through uh through high school and eventually college. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned mentioned baseball as the principal sport uh, uh yeah. that was brought into the into the southwest and the book takes note of of various players of latino background who played in the major leagues in the US in the first half of the 20th century. And you even note that the, the St. Louis Cardinals had a Cuban manager in the late 1930s, Miguel Gonzalez. So professional baseball in the early 20th century was, uh, would we say theoretically, or in fact open to, to Latino players? Well,
0: it was open to Latino players as long as they were of a certain hue. Okay. Uh, Because if you look at, for example, the, um, uh, the 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 story of uh, an individual like Al Lopez, who is from uh, Ybor City, his parents spent some time in Cuba, but his parents uh, were Spanish, and he considered himself a Spaniard. But if, for example, you look at uh, individuals like Armando Marsans or um, uh, Rafael Almeida or yeah, a little bit later on, Adolfo Luque, uh, when Almeida and Marsans were uh, initially signed by the Cincinnati Reds, the Reds made it a point to indicate in in their uh, uh, announcements that these individuals were not black, that they were Cuban, that mm-hmm. they were Castilian. Uh, I believe, if, if I remember correctly, one of the... Um, um, one of the uh, the articles that Sam uh, uh, cites uh, talks about how these individuals were uh, uh, two of the whitest uh, bars of uh, Castilian soap that had washed <laughs> upon these shores or something along those lines so I mean they 're making it very, very uh, uh, clear that the reason these guys are here is because they are cubans mm-hmm. and because they are considered white and and the same thing if you look at the um, at the life story of al lopez uh al lopez uh, al lopez when he was playing in the minor leagues he spent quite a bit of time playing in florida and he would go to play in Various small communities in northern Florida, they would uh, refer to him in very derogatory uh, uh, terminology, and they they would call him a uh, 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 a Cuban uh, who was of a, a black background, and they would use the the uh, the offensive terminology, and and you know what I'm referring mm-hmm. to here, and Al would say, well, you know, first of all uh I and I don't I'm not I'm not even Cuban, so basically these <laughs> individuals are not bothering me and and he you know, he said I know who my ancestors were. They were European. They were Spaniards. So you know, he he pretty much just uh uh you know didn't Take a- any kind of offense because he just figured that the person that's saying this doesn't know who I am, mm-hmm. doesn't know my background. So now, now of course, I'm sure that in his heart it had to have bothered him because Ybor City is 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 this mixture of Cuban, Spanish, Italian, and African American. Uh, so I'm I'm sure that that this had to bother him to an extent. I just don't think it. You know, he he showed uh, any kind of um, any kind of concern about the the, the commentary that these particular uh, individuals made about him. Mm-hmm.
1: So following from that, uh, something that you do discuss in the book is that uh, Jackie Robinson's entrance into the major leagues was a significant event for Latino players just as it was Absolutely. for African-American players.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, uh, Felipe Alou and um, in, in the Alou brothers, but, but in particular Felipe Alou, talks about how significant it was uh... as a dominican and as as a mulatto to see an individual of a darker skin color playing in the major leagues and how that gave him hope and, and a sense of possibility that he would be able to then Pursue his dream of of making it in, in the major leagues. I mean, if you, if you look at a picture of of Mike Gonzalez, if you look at a picture of Al Lopez, I mean, these individuals were light skinned. Adolfo Luca. These individuals were light skinned. But by the time that you get to the 1950s, and you have, and really the the guy who 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 we can say is the first black. Latino in the majors is uh mini minoso uh with the uh, with the whites with, I, I if I remember correctly, I think he played with the Indians first and then with the White Sox uh but he 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 really came to the forefront as uh while playing for the White Sox um now it is possible for these Latinos of any color to be looked at as a potential major leaguer and that is a tremendous step forward for um, people in Puerto Rico, Roberto Clemente obviously, uh people in Cuba, uh people in in the, in the Dominican Republic and in, in other parts of Latin America. So you, so Jackie Robinson is of critical importance to african-americans and and to the significance uh, and the significance of breaking the color barrier in the major leagues but he is also an individual that makes it possible for first a trickle and now the flood of Latinos who play uh, at at the major league level and I mean if you think about it um, how many of today's major league superstars are of latino background i mean albert pujols probably is the first, is the first mm-hmm. guy that 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 comes to mind uh and it it, it it is jackie robinson and then later on mini minoso and the aloo brothers who make it and Clemente who make it possible for uh for a uh uh, an Albert Pujols to, uh, to come on the scene and to take the very interesting, interesting route. And see, I mean, uh, Pujols is also, a, is an interesting character in that, you know, here, here is a, an individual that sort of ties in with a lot of these themes that we're, that we're talking about, especially towards the end of the, of the book. Here is a Dominican who first comes to New York, but then winds up in the Kansas City area, mm-hmm. uh, Basically, does his high school and his uh, his very brief stint in community college in the Kansas City area, and it's perfectly normal. No one no one uh, uh, raises an eyebrow over hey, who is this Dominican kid and where's he from? There, there, there will always be folks who will argue. Well, um, you know, he was uh, Pujols was hitting something like four sixty something, if I remember correctly uh... in his senior year uh... at the uh, in high school and there uh, of course are going to be coaches who are going to bring up the uh... daniel monte issue about well are, are you are we really sure that this kid is eighteen and it mm-hmm. turns mm-hmm. out that he was uh, so so th- there's there's not the sense that this kid doesn't belong on the field mm-hmm. because he's dominican or because he's of a certain hue the, the 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 question that people the the one question that most of these guys have left to ask is well is he is he is he really eighteen years old mm-hmm. so so I mean things have changed very very dramatically and and, and you can trace most of this directly back to uh, to uh, uh jackie Robinson,
1: obviously mm-hmm. so the book features on the cover uh Roberto Clemente, whom you just mm-hmm. mentioned as well, and i'll ask uh uh, you had said before we started the interview that you weren't involved in choosing the picture, but you were very happy to have have his picture uh, on the cover of the book. So why was uh, Clemente so so important for the the history of Latinos in U.S. sports?
0: Well, Clemente is an individual who is arguably uh, a, 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 the, the, the first superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he 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 will get his three thousandth hit the The way that he dies is is also obviously adds to his uh to the lustre of his career and of his life, but more than anything else, I think Clemente is a very proud individual who does not suffer fools gladly mm-hmm. and uh, he is an individual that challenges um the way that reporters in Pittsburgh and in other parts of the country portray him uh, in the newspaper um he talks he challenges them and says, you know maybe if if it weren't for the fact that I'm black and that I'm Puerto Rican, you guys wouldn't doubt me as much as you do when I say that my my neck hurts or that I'm injured or you wouldn't mm-hmm. say the things that you say about the way that I play baseball. Clemente was considered very in in the earlier part of his career he was considered a hot dog you know he supposedly would well it's not that he was a hot dog this is how he learned to play the game it's it's very similar to some of the arguments that are made about uh Jackie Robinson and later Willie Mays and some of the African Americans uh who, who spent some time in the negro leagues or who played who grew up in that milieu and they learned to play the game in a different way and that's part of what Clemente does um, you know he he really is a, 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 he was my childhood idol uh, when I was a kid growing up in Miami of course we had no uh, no uh, no major league baseball in South Florida and some folks would argue that we still don't but uh uh he was my idol because i my dad spoke very highly of him and he was latino he he played with just this reckless abandon and he 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 was a, he was just a fabulous ball player and and, and i came to admire him greatly and i was about uh, 11 when he when he passed and and it was it was one of the it was one of the saddest days of my mm-hmm. young life to that particular, to that moment uh, when 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 we heard uh, what happened to him so the fact that the uh uh the, the editors and the folks over at uh, human kinetics selected him uh for the cover of the book i, I just uh uh, i I was just ecstatic, so I, I I thought the cover, and you know they, they said well maybe we we 've got a couple of other choices or a couple and, and of course i I consulted with my with my colleagues, but I said, You know what this cover really does I think a wonderful job of conveying the pride and the the notion of 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 um, of identity and the vigorous element of our community uh... as far as participating in sports uh, by both men and women mm-hmm. uh... and i think all of that is encapsulated in that very wonderful photograph of clemente on the on un- on deck circle in his pirate uniform
1: mm-hmm. so right sure. now it's it's october it's playoff time in baseball and mm-hmm. in, in my neighborhood up here in Michigan, the, the series that most people are, are following is the American League Champions. Well, in your neighborhood too, down in Texas. Absolutely. Between Absolutely. the Tigers and the Rangers. And so we have players in this series like Miguel Cabrera, Victor mm-hmm. Martinez, Adrian Beltre, Nelson Cruz, Neftali Feliz. So, so Latino players are, are so prominent in Major League Baseball. Next year, Albert Pujols is going to be the richest player in the history, bar
0: none, yeah, yeah bar none
1: of of baseball. Uh, so, looking at the prominence of Latino players today, you think this is this is a great time for for Latino baseball players? But as a historian, are there issues that that you look at in in baseball today that that give you pause that that cause concern for you?
0: Well, you know, it, it's not just the the, the issue of what is happening back, for example, in the in the Dominican Republic? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's part of it. Um, I, I don't think that Latinos have yet gotten to a point where succeeding in athletics is the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you you have the Albert Pujols, you have the Tony Romos you have uh, you know athletes in, in, in other sports and, and I think that these men and 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 a few women are definite role models uh but at the same time I think you you have a sense that these are very unique individuals so in that regard, you know, some of the things that, are, uh, that, that unfortunately you see in some parts of the African-American community where athletic is seen as the mechanism, I don't think we've quite reached that point yet. Mm-hmm. With Latinos, now as far as baseball players are concerned, uh, my biggest concern is the treatment, the way that these kids, primarily in the Dominican, are 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 treated. I think things have improved, um, but you still have to take into consideration uh, how are these young men being treated. What are their uh, opportunities uh, f- uh, for an education is baseball the only path that these uh, that these kids have and and unfortunately for a lot of them um, it is. Um, what responsibility does Major League Baseball have to give back and sort of look out for the interests? You know Albert Pujols, people like that. I mean. They're going to make their money. I don't begrudge them that. But what about the individuals who never make it off mm-hmm. of the academies in the Dominican Republic? And now you're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, you've invested basically your entire life into the possibility that, or the dream that you were going to make it into the big leagues and make a lot of money. And now now what? mm mm-hmm. Uh I, I don't think that that filter has filtered down so much into the other sports. I don't think you see you know, for example, these kids in uh in um uh, in Donna in the 1960s, these kids in Kansas today, uh I, I don't think necessarily that those kids are looking at I'm gonna make it into the NFL and mm-hmm. I'm gonna be famous and I don't think that that is the mindset um I think that there there is in a strange way there's something positive about that if if you if you understand what I'm mm-hmm, saying. Mm-hmm. some of these kids will get opportunities to play maybe it, it, at the at the next level. I don't think a, a lot of them you know and, and I mean that you're playing the percentages here a lot of them are not going to be in uh uh, playing Division One football for major powers like Tejada uh, did, uh, but there are lots of examples of some of the uh, of these Latino kids being able to make it, and, and, and young women as well, being able to get scholarships to NAIA schools, uh, or smaller uh, institutions where they can actually go, get an education, play their sport, and go on and be successful in. All, pers- all of their pursuits in life. And, and frankly, I think that's the greatest value of this movement of these Latino kids into these communities and participating in the sports of these communities uh, over the last 20 some 30 years. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to ask a general question about athletic stereotypes. And when you were talking earlier about uh the introduction of of American team sports into the the borderlands in the the Southwest, Uh, you mentioned Mm -hmm. these these stereotypes held by American whites back then that they considered themselves to be the superior athletes, whereas Mexican-Americans were were regarded as lazy, as undisciplined. They were Mm -hmm. generally seen as unfit for team sports. And uh, one of the main arguments of the book is that Latino athletes have used sports to discredit stereotypes. And so I want to ask you, how is this stereotype in particular regarding, um, you know, physical ability and athletic ability, how has that changed uh, in the last century or even in the last half century?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a very interesting way, and see, this was one of the things that really uh, interested me um, as I was doing the research on Latinos in the NFL it It was just fascinating to see how many latinos have played quarterback in mm-hmm. the nfl uh and, and i mean if you if you look at uh, some of the work that Roden has done uh in 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 his book on uh, you know forty forty uh, forty million dollar slaves and third and a mile particularly third and third in a mile to go as far as african american quarterbacks uh, i find it very interesting that you have People like Joe Cap, Jim Plunkett, George Myra, uh, Tony Romo today, uh, uh, Latinos have, have been able to play quarterback in, in the NFL for, for a, a, a substantial amount of time. So this argument about the, the, quote, limitations of their intellectual capabilities to play the most difficult, most demanding position on a football field has not really been questioned. So it's been this issue of are these guys strong enough, mm-hmm. big enough, fast enough? And you know, I, I got to share something with you here. There's a there's a publication here in Texas called Campbell's Texas Football. It, it is basically the Bible of Texas football, and and you you know what I'm talking about. How significant that sport is here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that campbell's Texas football does every year is they will have a um, uh, a, a series of, of of newspaper reporters from various parts of the state who will make the case as to why it is that the best foot the best high school football in Texas is played here mm mm-hmm. It's played in the Metroplex, in the Dallas-Fort Worth-Arlington area. It's played in Houston. It's played in here, out here in West Texas. It's played, you know, you, you have a very lively and very articulate debate as to our region of the state plays the best football, <laughs> and here's why. The only part of the state that really doesn't get any coverage in that particular debate is South Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you go south of uh, San Antonio... Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's not a reporter from McAllen, or there's not a reporter from Laredo, who is chiming in and saying, "Now wait a minute, what about?" Because the, the sense is, and, and, and look, there are there are a, a lot of kids who are very fine athletes in those parts, that part of the state, but there's not. Once a team from Laredo or once a team from McAllen or once a team from uh, uh, El Paso gets to a certain point, as I said earlier, once they get to a certain point in the state playoffs and they play larger schools from metropolitan areas, the the difference in size and the difference in depth really does become very apparent. Mm Mm-hmm and and that has a that has helped to maintain a sense that these kids are not quite as good so we really don't need to talk okay. about them as much so so the, it's not so much i think that people are making the argument that well these kids can't do it it's that they haven't done it so why do we really need to waste our time talking about them mm-hmm. and and i would argue to a to a certain extent maybe that's part of the reason why up until the work that Sam has done, Jose has done, and, and I've done, and, and a few other folks have done. That's why really no—that might be part of the reason why no one had really thought about Latinos as athletes before, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in an academic sense, because the the field of Chicano history, of Mexican American history, was focused on labor and on community organizing and on uh, issues along those lines, and sport was just not really. That considered that important of a pursuit. Mm-hmm. And now we're finding out the more research that we do that sport was and is very much a part of daily life, and it's also a, a, a tool that is used to maintain uh, and strengthen cultural identity, and it is also a way to break down uh, stereotypes, and to gain a measure of acceptance among mm-hmm. the broader population.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's, al-
0: not ju- it's not just about
1: the scores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, and I want to uh, ask a last question, actually go back to Alex Tejada. And uh, okay. something you note in that introduction is uh, when he started playing for, for the Arkansas Razorbacks, uh, they began, the university or the radio network began Spanish-language broadcasts correct? Correct. And so I want to ask you about that, looking looking at that episode. Um, not only looking at, at Latino athletes participating in sports, but how are sports now being marketed to this? You know, we hear all about it in terms of politics, this, this important and growing uh, demographic group uh, in the United States. Uh, so the political parties are directing their attention to Latinos, how are sports leagues and universities with their athletic programs targeting mm-hmm. uh, Latinos?
0: Well, you know, if there's one, th- if there's one thing that uh, teams in the National Football League, teams in Major League Baseball, and, and even in other sports have come, have come to realize is that Latinos love sport, that we're willing to pay to see sports, and that we're willing to pay to participate in in sporting activities. And the NFL is is reaching out to Latinos in places like Atlanta and in Indianapolis uh in Seattle. Uh they're not necessarily broadcasting games in Spanish yet, but that might be a possibility somewhere down the line. You also I think need to look at the history of the Miami Dolphins, the Dallas Cowboys, the Oakland Raiders, uh, and look to see what type of market research, what type of analysis that these teams do. Uh, As I told you before we started the interview, I I, I remember very distinctly uh, sitting down with my dad and listening to the Miami Dolphins in the early 1970s and actually my dad you know, being from Cuba, he knew about football football American football was played in Cuba, but it was certainly not the major sport. But I, I literally as a 10 year old 11 year old was teaching my dad <laughs> the game of American football and he still listens to the Miami Dolphins and the Florida Marlins and uh, other teams in Spanish uh, uh, today. So uh, there, there is a, a definitive market uh, in an area like boxing, uh latinos especially in the lower weight classifications latinos are the consumers mm-hmm. uh, uh uh one of the greatest quotes i think we came up with um uh, that we found uh, in doing the research um was a particular uh boxing promoter who was who was uh, up, uh, promoting a particular a fight in I think this was like maybe the early 1990s, and he talks about how well we did very well in in California. We did very well in other parts of the West, uh, and, and for for paper for pay per view sales, we did very par- well in parts of the West. And then we hit the Mississippi. And his 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 exact words were, "Then we ran out of Mexicans,
1: yeah.
0: and and all of a sudden the sales uh, dropped off the dropped off a cliff." Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, this particular individual says, well, now we're getting lots of sales from Iowa, Kansas, Arkansas, not surprisingly, all these places where Latinos have moved into over the past 20 years or so. To work in meat packing and in chicken processing and so on and so forth so you're actually seeing the economic impact of that demographic change that is taking place in various parts of the uh, of the Midwest and in other parts of the country so the the Latino consumer base is growing they are being attracted to uh, a lot of different sports one of the one of my favorite topics in in this book was one of, uh, the section where i talk about the laredo bucks and the the success that a hockey team has had in laredo and it's a hockey team owned by a cuban american who used to play football at the university of texas and played in the nfl and now it's a a real estate developer, and and does this sort of as a as a side uh, 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 area of interest, and the success that the Laredo Bucks and teams in the Rio Grande Valley and in other predominantly Spanish uh, uh, areas of, of, of heavy Latino concentration in Texas, how well these hockey these minor league hockey teams have done. It's a fascinating story.
1: Alright, so I'll ask you to finish. I know that, that you need to head off to a meeting. Uh, yes, what, sir. What, what are you working on now?
0: Well, uh, I am now that we've done sort of a broad uh, study that, that tries to capture as much of this story throughout the country as possible, um, I want to have a, a, a more micro-study. And specifically, I've been working with some folks uh, at uh, Garden City uh, high school in in Garden City, Kansas, mm-hmm. and what I want to see is the history of the Latino population as athletes in that particular part of the state of Kansas now over the last twenty five thirty years uh, there's been a dramatic increase in that population, but there was a mexican mexican American population in that city. At the turn of the 20th century. And there's a lot of interesting dynamics. You have Mexican Americans who are, quote, old timers in Garden City, and they don't necessarily find common cause with the recién llegados, with the newly arrived folks. Heck, some of those folks don't even speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a very interesting dynamic, and it's playing out in part. In the soccer fields, mm-hmm. the basketball courts, and in the football fields of uh, of Garden City, so that's that's kind of the, uh, the 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 new project. It is at a it's at the very very preliminary stage of development, but that's that's what I'm hoping to do. Actually, take some of the stuff that that I discuss in this last chapter of of this book, mm-hmm. and just sort of bring it down to a more micro level uh, and see how some of the themes and some of the theories that we develop in this book hold up uh, when looked at in a particular locale. Mm
1: -hmm. I look forward to it because I I learned a lot from from this book uh, and I enjoyed reading it. So, George, thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Bruce. You have a good day.
1: You've been listening to an interview with George Iber about his co-authored book, Latinos in U.S. Sport published by Human Kinetics. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from history to public policy. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports at the iTunes Store and link to our Facebook page, where you can offer comments and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.